Well, glad you're here, and uh, you know, this was a tough Sunday to be here. <laughs> I mean, it was raining, and if, you know, if you, you have lost an hour last night, how many of us were disgruntled when we realized, oh, that's that time, you know? I remember telling my daughter she was not pleased about that, and that's we lose, we lose an hour. Well, we're going to continue our sermon series called One Day or Day One, and Tim Keller shares in a book he wrote called A Vision for a Gospel-Centered Life. He tells a story about a college professor and mentor, a friend of his, Dr. Addison Leach. And Dr. Leach tells of two young women were at this college where he taught, and they were very both... They were both very bright, and their respective parents wanted them to get a good degree, a master's degree, and to go on to successful careers, as many of us parents do. But during their time at the school, and they weren't Christians before, they became followers of Jesus. And their parents, um, in this deciding to be a follower of Jesus, they also decided that they were going to go and be missionaries, and their parents were not happy about this. Matter of fact, the parents had a fit. And one of the mothers called Dr. Leach, thinking that Dr. Leach was the reason that the girls had become, in her own words, religious fanatics, rather than pursuing the course they had hoped for, getting a career and having security. Instead, they were going wildly off into the blue, was her explanation. She said, we wanted our daughter to get a master's degree, start a career, and get something in the bank so she could have some security. Well, Dr. Leach responded to this mom with this. Please just let me remind you of something. We're all on a little ball of rock called Earth, and we're spinning along through space at zillions of miles per hour. Even if we don't run into anything, eventually we're all going to die. Which means that under every single one of us, there's a trap door that's going to open one day and we're going to fall off this ball of rock. And underneath it will either be the everlasting arms of God or absolutely nothing. So maybe we can get a master's degree and get some security on that. But the biggest savings account in the world cannot stop cancer. It can't stop traffic accidents. It can't stop broken hearts. It can't give you anything. Any of the things that only God can give you. He's the only significance you can have. He's the only love that you can get and can't lose. That's a pretty good response, isn't it? And for these girls and their parents, for a lo- sounds like more the parents than the girls, these parents, one day was going to be this successful career, this financial security that they would find through a career in their master's degree. But instead, their daughters became followers of Jesus. And it was more than just joining the church. It was more than just acknowledging that Jesus was who he said he was. They actually were going to be followers of Jesus. And the decision to change their goal and their parents' goal of one day of worldly success to day one of success according to Jesus and his kingdom. And that's what they pursued. So this morning, I ask us to think about those questions in our own lives, or maybe even for our kids' lives, thinking about what is your security today? What do you feel, or what do you think you're secure in today? Is it your career? Is it your success in that career? Is it your business success? Is it a bank account, a savings account, your safety net, your social standing? 
Well, we're going to continue this series one day or day one. And for those of you who may be new or here for the first time, this series is basically about a lot of times in life we say, one day I'm going to do this. And day one of that one day never starts, does it? Well, I'm one day I'm going to do this, but we never get to that one day of starting those things. So we've been going through the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. You know, in the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've been looking at Mark specifically And Mark has a fast-paced gospel, and we've seen Jesus um, performing miracles, uh, exorcisms, healings, and teaching with this amazing authority. And he has become very popular, especially among the common people. They love Jesus. They They love the way he teaches. They love how he identifies with them and their real issues in life. But he's having a real major problem with the religious establishment because they don't like Jesus and what he teaches. And we're about halfway through Mark's account at this point. Uh, Mark is 16 chapters long, and we are at uh, chapter 8 today. And we're not going through every single verse, but we've been kind of going through it. And if you remember, I said at the very beginning, Mark in chapter 1 says, I'm writing this book of Jesus Christ about his account of his life because I believe he is the Messiah, the Son of God. But I'm just going to write for you what his life was like, and you have to decide. Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Messiah? So he just takes us on this fast-paced journey of Jesus' life. So our text today, it's interesting. Jesus himself is going to inquire of his own followers about his identity. He's going to ask them, who do you say that I am? And so we're going to get to that in just a minute. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. That's going to be on the screen. If you got it on your phones or your Bibles with you, please follow along. So Mark writes this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes into his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now that may or may not be a familiar passage to you, but it's very interesting. Again, because Jesus has just been showing through his actions that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. But now he's in a different part of Israel than he's been in a while. And he's actually asking his disciples about who he is, but I want to talk just a little bit about where they are when Jesus asked this question because I think this is significant. They are in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, and you may or may not know the background of that, but this was a, a city of great power. 
You can probably tell by the name Caesarea. It was named for Caesar. Uh, this was the place where Herod the Great had built a temple in honor of Caesar, the, the Roman uh, leader. And his son Philip had made the temple even more elaborate than before with a grandeur that was really known by people all over the world. So you can hence the name Caesarea Philippi is why that region was called that. And all of this was done to encourage the worship of Caesar as God and to demonstrate the power of this mighty Roman Empire. And secondly, Caesarea Philippi was the place or a place of great idolatry. In addition to worshiping Caesar in that temple, it had a great temple dedicated to the god Pan. Anybody know who Pan was? Pan was the uh, half man, half goat who played the flute, who many people worshiped, believed he was the ruler of the wild, of shepherds and flocks and the great outdoors. In addition to Pan, there were numerous other lesser gods and goddesses that were worshipped and prayed to in this environment. And it was a very pagan environment. And that's interesting that as Jesus is walking through this environment where there's lots of pagan gods and, and temples to, to gods, he's asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? Why would Jesus ask that in this place? Maybe the disciples needed to know who Jesus was in context of all the world religions. The disciples would eventually have to answer that question in the midst, in the midst of numerous worldviews and world religions. And the same is true for us today. We need to be aware of other faiths, of other world religions, because if we are going to have a conversation with someone about our faith, we need to know a little bit about their faith and where they come from. And so they think this was true. So it's one thing to believe in Jesus when you're surrounded like we are today by followers of Jesus. It's another thing to believe in Jesus when you're surrounded by those who don't believe in Jesus. And it's not about believing in Jesus just in church, but about believing Jesus in our everyday lives out in the world. It's easy to believe God when you're worshiping with God as we are this morning with others, but it's completely different when you're surrounded by non-believers. And I know you all know this. I'm not telling you anything new. But I think it's interesting that Jesus is trying to get them to look around where they are, and he's asking these questions. The location also was a great reminder regarding future of evangelism and outreach. Jesus may have been asking this question here to remind the disciples of their target audience, which they think it's our Jewish people, everybody that looks and thinks like we do. And Jesus going, no, that's what you think now. I've been trying to tell you differently, but the Gentiles are God's people too. They matter. They are valuable to God. And all people are valuable to God. And they all deserve to hear the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And they don't get it right now, but the disciples will realize they are going to go and probably come back to this place, even to these people who maybe don't believe in God or don't care about God, but he's going to send them there one day to share the gospel message. So it seems interesting that Jesus wanted to know from his disciples, well, what do the people around you say about who I am? They've been traveling around for at least a year now or more, and they've heard all these different things. So we ask him, he goes, who do people say that I am? And Jesus says, uh, I mean, the disciples say, well, some say you're a John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. You remember Herod, who actually cut or had John the Baptist's head cut off. He really believed that Jesus was a manifestation or a coming back of John the Baptist. So they tell Jesus, who everybody basically knows you have power. They know you have to be from God, so they think you're some sort of a prophet. But notice, none of the disciples say the people think you're the Messiah. Now, maybe some people did, but he goes, well, that's great. And Jesus already knew what people thought of him, 
But he says, but what about you? You're my closest followers. You're the ones who are my disciples. Who do you say that I am? And Peter was the one who speaks up and, and gave the answer. And I always love people like Peter being in class. Because I don't like it being silent. Hopefully somebody will give an answer and it doesn't have to be me. And then we can all just go, oh good, you know. We don't have that awkward silence. But immediately he says, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And you're like, what? Jesus, everybody's seen what you can do. They've seen you do these miracles. They've seen you heal these people. They've seen you feed 5,000 people, 4,000 people. They've seen you raise a little girl from the dead. What do you mean don't tell anybody? Isn't that the way we're going to get this message out of how you're going to redeem us? And in Matthew's account, we go back to Matthew, he tells a little bit more after Jesus after Peter answers this question, I think that's going to be up on the screen as well, if we can get that up there. So in uh, uh, Matthew's gospel, Peter in chapter 16, verses 17 through 20 says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was revealed to, to you by flesh and not by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he ordered, just like Mark, he says, and he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. Jesus, shouldn't we be telling people you're the Messiah? Think about that for a minute. Have you ever wondered that? Why did Jesus say, don't tell anybody? You've just revealed who you are. We've just said and you agreed, that's right. But don't tell anybody? Well, maybe there's several reasons for that. I read a commentator, Jeff Stott, and he says one of those reasons is probably a political reason. If the disciples were to go and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, it would raise false hopes among the Jewish people who were expecting this earthly Messiah who would fulfill their political hopes, basically saying Israel is going to be back on top. They're going to be the world power like when King David was there, when Solomon was there. And he's going to deliver us, this modern-day Messiah, deliver us from out from under the Roman Empire. And they would look forward to that. So Jesus is saying, don't go spreading that because that's not what my mission is. I'm not a political leader. I'm not a military leader. There was a practical reason. The disciples were not yet qualified to proclaim the whole truth concerning Jesus as the Messiah. The disciples could clearly see who Jesus was, but they did not quite yet understand how Jesus would fulfill his mission as the Messiah. His messianic mission could be correctly or could not be correctly understood without Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus being resurrected from the dead. So Jesus is saying, hold on there. Let's make sure you understand the mission. You know who I am. So Jesus wanted them to wait before they started to proclaim him as the Messiah. People needed to know who this Messiah really was and what his mission was. And as a result, the gospel message was still incomplete. It would be premature for the disciples to go into the world and preach the good news until after his death and resurrection, and that was the plan. And so Jesus tells them, this is my mission. And he starts telling them immediately about the elders, the chief priests, and the religious leaders are going to arrest him, and he's going to be killed, and on the third day he's going to be risen again. And what Jesus revealed for the first time here was this pivotal shift in the thinking of his disciples and others of the kind of Messiah he was and is compared to what the disciples thought he should be. So he began to teach them, Mark says, that the Son of Man must suffer. 
Messiahs don't suffer, Jesus. He must be rejected by the elders. They've already seen this, but Messiahs don't get rejected. And then he must be killed. Jesus, for crying out loud, Messiahs aren't killed. They're here to save us. And after three days, rise again. And all of it's just going right over their head because they're thinking Messiah in human terms. And this had to be quite a shock to the disciples to hear this. They were right about Jesus being the Messiah. But Messiah to them, again, was for the Jewish nation, selfishly just for them. He would be king and ruler and deliverer from this Roman empire and oppression. And they had gotten this honestly. They had been told from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that talked about there will be a Messiah coming. A new day will come when the Messiah will, will bring Israel back. But they didn't really understand what that all meant. That was a human expectation. But Jesus knows it's critical for them to know the kind of Messiah he is. And that's one who serves, one who suffers, one who dies, and one who resurrects. And Peter just could not believe this, nor could he accept it, what Jesus was saying. So he had to set Jesus right. Can you imagine pulling Jesus to the side and rebuking Jesus? No, 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 Jesus, let me, let me tell you how it's going to be. I mean, I just can't even imagine that. But Peter didn't have a problem. He was so amped up about this. He had been so excited about getting out from under the thumb of Rome and this kingdom that Jesus was bringing, and he was going to be a part of it. So Jesus says, yeah, you know who I am, but you don't understand the mission, Peter. And But he's rebuking Jesus. And David Guzik writes this. He says, Peter's intent was love for Jesus, but he was unwittingly used of Satan that day. You don't have to be demon-possessed for Satan to use you. And we need to be on guard lest we are unwittingly used. We have read in Matthew's account that Jesus went on to build Peter up after his answer. It's not hard to see that Peter was just following those steps. Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus complimented Peter, telling him, you know what, that was revealed to you from God. Jesus told of his impending suffering, his death, and his resurrection that would come. And then Peter goes, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that's not right. And he believed that he heard from God to rebuke Jesus. But did God really tell Peter to rebuke Jesus? I don't think he did. Notice Jesus responds to Peter's rebuke in a very harsh way, doesn't he? Get behind me, Satan. You're like, whoa, Peter made a mistake, but is he Satan? But Jesus sees clearly that Satan is in this mix. This was a strong rebuke from Jesus, yet entirely appropriate. Though a moment before Peter spoke as a messenger from God, he is now speaking as a messenger of Satan. Jesus knew there was a satanic purpose in discouraging him from his ministry on the cross, and Jesus would not allow that purpose to succeed. Let me take you back to Jesus when he was being tempted by Satan in the desert. You remember that? And Satan was actually there tempting Jesus. Jesus knew it was Satan. He goes, hey, if you really are the Son of God, if you really are the Messiah, then turn these rocks into bread. And Jesus quoted Scripture every time. He goes, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word muttered by God the Father. And then he told him, hey, I'll take you up on here, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. And he goes, if you'll just bow down to me, Jesus. And Jesus knows what he's doing. But at the end of that temptation, do you remember what we read in the other Gospels? That Satan left Jesus for a more opportune time. He was going to come back many times and try to trick Jesus, try to get Jesus off his mission. 
And he's using. Jesus sees. I'm not mad necessarily at you, Peter, because you have the mind of the world and you're not completely developed to where you need to be yet. But I know Satan knows that and he's right there. And when he said, get behind me, Satan, he wasn't necessarily talking necessarily just to Peter, but he knew Satan was tempting Peter to believe those lies about what his mission was. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to do it. I am a suffering servant. I am a suffering Messiah. I am a Messiah that has to die for the sins of the world, and I'm not going to be taken off that mission. And it seems like Peter's intentions were good, but he wanted Jesus to go another route. And we can be sure that Peter was not aware that he was necessarily speaking for Satan just as a moment before he was not aware that he was speaking for God. And it's so much often to be a, a tool of God or of the devil then we really want to believe. Jesus says, you are not mindful, Peter, of the things of God, but the things of men. And Satan uses that. Jesus exposed how Peter came into this satanic way of thinking. He didn't make a deliberate choice to reject God and embrace Satan, but he simply let his mind settle on the things of men rather than the things of God. And Satan took advantage of it. I want you to think about that for a minute. That's how God does that in our lives, doesn't he? It's not necessarily a bad thing, not necessarily a bad intentions, but we don't really understand God and his word and his mission in the world. Sometimes we get caught up in what the world's doing, don't we? And we go, yeah, I guess that's all right. I mean, I it doesn't seem like that's what God said, but I don't want to rock the boat, so I'll just kind of go along with it. And we do, and Satan's going, that's right. What did God really say? It goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Did God really say you're not supposed to eat that? Well, yeah, he really did say that. Yeah, but the only reason he said that is because you will be like God, and he doesn't want you to be like God. And we continue to fall for that lie over and over and over again. Peter is a perfect example of how a sincere heart coupled with human thinking can often lead to disaster. With his mind on the things of men, Peter saw the Messiah only as this picture of power and strength instead of this suffering servant. And because Peter couldn't handle a suffering Messiah, he rebuked Jesus. And we find this hard to grasp even in our own human thinking. Because it's easy for us to go, yeah, I can't believe Peter did that. But I bet I would have done that too. I don't want, no, 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 Jesus. Listen, you just need to get rid of Rome. You need to get rid of all the bad political people and all the bad people in this earth and just leave all us good people here and everything will be fine. Now get to it. Do you not think of that? If we could just get rid of all the bad powers in this world, then it would be the way it should be. Messiahs don't get killed, Jesus. They do the killing, and then they clean up the mess, right? Well, human thinking says yes. But the problem is the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, tells us through the prophets that God says none of us are righteous. No, not one. That's right. Not one. And then we go to the New Covenant, the New Testament, and Paul and other writers tell us that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. So guess what, y'all? If God's going to take out all the bad people in the world, that includes me and you. So he'd have to kill all of us. And he doesn't want to do that. And this is where Jesus' type of messiahship is so powerful. The suffering and death of Jesus was and is a must because of two great facts. Our sin and God's love. Think about that for a minute. While his death was the ultimate example of man's sin against God, it was also the supreme expression of God's love to man. You see, God can't look at sin and simply shrug at it and go, well, you know, they're just, they'll come around. 
They didn't really mean that. They'll come around. No, a holy and perfect and just God can't just look at sin and go, eh, they'll grow out of that. No, something has to be done. Man's sin had to be paid for. It had to be dealt with. And death was the only way. And death gets our attention, doesn't it? What do you mean my, my sin leads to death? That's right. In God's world, because He is the Creator, it does lead to death. And there's no way around that. And I deserve death. You deserve death. All of the people that have ever lived, we all deserve death. And Jesus stepped in and said, no, I've got to deal with sin. And I will still deal with it by death. But I'm going to take your death on me. Why? Because that's what has to be done. But ultimately, in that expression of taking that death on himself, he shows us how much he loves us, doesn't he? He shows us how much he loves us. God cannot just simply shrug at sin, but through that horrific sacrificial death of Jesus, his pure, sinless sacrifice also revealed God's unconditional and transformational love for you and for me and for all of humanity. And that's exactly what we needed. May not be what we wanted, but it's what we needed to be back in graces with God. And then Jesus turns to the crowd And I bet he says, you guys have been listening. You've been listening to what me and my disciples are talking about. I want you to understand. Are you here to be a follower? Are you here just to kind of go, let's just see what Jesus is going to do next. He's this spectacle that we follow around and see what miracle he's going to do next. But Jesus turns and along with his disciples and all, he says, all of you who have have maybe heard that I've been identified as the As the Messiah, I want you to know something. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Have you ever heard, and I know you have, about people who, through their popularity or through their success in life, reach the top of the mountain. And when they get there, they tell us how lonely and depressing they are, that there's nothing there. And this is what Jesus is saying. Yeah, you can have all that success, but if you forfeit your soul in the process, what have you really gained? And Jesus doesn't want us to experience life. That's not why he created us. And these words about taking up a cross in that culture have to have been shocking to those who are listening. They're going... We've seen these Roman crosses. The Romans are really, really good at crucifixion. They get our attention. I don't want to end up there. And Rome says, yeah, don't rock the boat because you'll be there. We don't put up with that. We worship Caesar. And so they say, wait a minute. If I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, all these miracles and everybody praising him, that's pretty cool. I'm all up for that. But taking up a cross? No, thank you. I don't want to be a part of that. Those words about taking up your cross have become figurative for us in our culture, though. We don't see people dying on a cross. We see it as jewelry, don't we? We see it as things we put in our churches, and we go, oh, that's beautiful, the cross. And sometimes we say things like, well, an annoying person is my cross to bear. I wonder what Jesus thinks about that. Or a situation where, yeah, I happened to drive my old car another year, that's my cross to bear. I wonder what Jesus thinks about that. And we certainly see in our culture this pursuit of gaining the whole world at any cost as something to be commended. As we scroll through our social medias, everybody's trying to say, look what I did, look what I did, look what I did. 
Jesus did not see it that way then, and he certainly does not see it that way now. He came to earth and willingly died on the cross so that we would not forfeit our own souls. And I wonder if we really understand what kind of Messiah Jesus is. Do we really grasp that following him requires sacrifice and suffering? So what do you say today? Who do you say that Jesus is for you? You can say what people at your work say, what people at your school say, what your college professor says. But honestly, we can say anything. We can even confess that he's the Lord. He is the Messiah. And we can praise him like we did as we sang all those songs this morning. But what Jesus is asking is, what do you say about me in your everyday life? That's where I really know if you're following me. Not in your Sunday morning life or someone's watching you life, but your everyday always life through your actions? Are you relying on your good behavior, on your responsible financial decisions, or your good political or social view to save you? Jesus says, that's not going to save you. I've made that clear. During the 14th and 15th centuries, Thomas Akempis lived. He was a monastic priest of the Netherlands, Christian theologian and author of what was called Imitation of Christ that was a devotional that he is credited with writing, and many think, with the exception of the Bible, was considered one of the most influential works in all of Christian literature. And in that, he wrote this. He said, Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, but few who long for distress. Plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, but few to share his fast. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread, few as far as the drinking of the cup of suffering. Many that revere his morality, but few that follow him in the indignity of his cross. Many that love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to them. Many that praise and bless him as long as they receive comfort from him. But should Jesus hide from them and leave them for a while? They fall into complaining or become deeply depressed. Those who love Jesus for his own sake, not for the sake of their own comfort, bless him in time of trouble and heartache as much as when they are full of consolation. Man, those are powerful words, but it's true, isn't it? That's what Jesus was calling. If you're going to call me Messiah, if you're going to call me Lord, you have to understand there's things that come with that. And it's not always easy. And Jesus loves us enough to tell us the truth about what discipleship really means. If Jesus is really the Son of God, we must make Him our Lord and our Savior in our life. And maybe there's somebody here today that needs to do that for the first time, and you can do that. But I want to encourage you, you don't just all of a sudden get it, do you? Did Peter just get it? No. He answered rightly, and then a few minutes later he gets called, Get behind me, Satan! And then we know that he denied Jesus, but Jesus never, never, never gave up on Peter. And Peter preached that sermon on the day of Pentecost that brought over 3,000 people to the Lord. So I want you to hear that. God will use you right where you are if you're committed to really being his disciple. And he'll use you in a powerful way, but you have to make that commitment and recognize that suffering and those kind of things come with discipleship. So maybe there's somebody here today that needs to make that decision, and you can do that. You can make that confession. And you can be baptized and you bury your old life, your old self, and you resurrect to the same unique self you are that God created you to be, but now you are in Christ 
And you've buried that old way of doing things your way. And you're going to follow in Jesus' footsteps now. And we can do that today if you need to do that. So we offer that invitation. I'm going to ask our, our team to come on up. And they're going to lead us in a, in a song. And we're going to reflect on what Christ has done for us. We're going to reflect, hopefully, on understanding what not only who he was, but what his mission was. And we understand that he didn't just say all that stuff about suffering. We know he ultimately went to the cross, didn't he? And he suffered immensely so that you and I could be forgiven. And we're going to take communion this morning. If you're here for the first time, we invite you to do that with us. If you didn't get one of those little packets while we sing the song, you can sneak back there and grab one. But you don't have to be a member of this church. If you are a believer and you want to reflect on what Christ has done for you, this is what this time is for. We want to remember... Because Jesus, this church didn't come up with communion. Jesus came up with communion, didn't he? And he asked us to remember and never forget how much he loves us. So we're going to take that communion together and we're going to worship and we're going to reflect. But if you do have a decision this morning, I'll be right here and I'll try to walk you through that. So let's stand and sing and reflect together. <clears throat>